This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Payday loans are in the crosshairs on this year's ballot. Proposition 111 would limit interest rates to 36 percent on loans that are often advertised as quick fixes. The fridge broke. We had to take Buddy to the vets. My car wouldn't start. Again. Makes it sound like they're one-time deals for emergencies, but consumer advocates say that's often not the case. Borrowers can end up in a vicious cycle, unable to pay off a loan they extended, which costs them even more. According to the state, the average interest rate for payday loans is 129 percent. Kim Ray of Denver says she took out a $500 loan. She was able to pay it back on time, but says that wasn't easy. It added another bill. And to be honest, I didn't, just working my regular job, I did not have enough money to actually pay it back and keep up on my regular bills. So I ended up actually taking out another job to pay that back. On that $500 loan, she says she had to pay $125 in interest over two and a half months. Well, let's talk through Prop 111 with Nick Bork from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts. He has done extensive research on payday loans and has studied Colorado's existing laws as well. Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Let's start with who most often takes out a payday loan. Uh, Sort of profile the customer for us. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, People who use payday loans are actually very mainstream in some respects, uh, more than people often would think. So you think about a typical payday loan customer and you're looking at somebody, A, who has a checking account. You have to have a checking account at a bank or credit union because that's how the um, payday lender uh, guarantees they get repaid. It's also uh, somebody who has income. Uh, They look at your income and they they, uh, securitize or collateralize the loan against that income stream. So that's usually somebody who's working. It's also uh, somebody who's making typically about $15 an hour on a full-time basis. So that's $30,000 a year or so um, on average. So they're they're kind of mainstream people, um, not uh, affluent, but not bottom of the barrel in terms of income. They're the working poor, they're the people living paycheck to paycheck. And the reason why most people get a loan seven out of 10 times in our research is they need help paying some kind of regular bill like... um, mortgage or rent or car payments. A lot of the story here is people who are hourly wage earners who have volatile income, and almost half of the households in this country are what researchers would call income volatile. Their their income changes by 25% or more from month to month, and, and that's often because they're working at a retail store or factory or somewhere else where they're paid hourly, and the number of hours that they work changes quite a bit. So it's people in that situation, they're, they're finding gaps of three or $400 here or there in their income, and they're looking for help to pay a bill. Well, that's interesting, uh, and perhaps not what people might have assumed about those who take out payday loans. I want to say that in a Denver Post column, John Caldera of the Independence Institute in Denver rails against Prop 111, claiming that it assumes poor people are stupid. And he writes, quote, payday loan guys aren't saints. But their customers are, in fact, terrible credit risks. Many rack up massive debts to then declare bankruptcy, leaving the lender with nothing. To make up this loss, lenders charge wildly high rates and fees. So we're going to do some fact-checking here, Nick. Are these interest rates justified by the risk of the people taking these loans? 
Well, let me start by saying we don't have a position on this ballot initiative. That's this right. Is, this is an issue for the voters to decide. Um, but the the question that the voters have to decide here really is, should we have payday loan stores in Colorado or not? Because a 36% rate cap, like what the ballot initiative proposes, will eliminate the payday loan stores in Colorado. Important point. Um, the column, uh, the, the the comment that you mentioned is um, one particular point of view. I think one thing that's been lacking in this debate, as far as I've been able to see it, is uh, some nuance about what's really going on in Colorado versus the extreme viewpoints of there shouldn't be regulation on the one hand or there shouldn't be stores on the other. Colorado has right now today uh, by far the the market with the lowest rates, the most affordable payments, and the strongest consumer, consumer protections of any payday loan market in the country. I haven't seen t- people talking about that. So the comment that payday lenders are charging exorbitant rates um, is justifiable in the sense that they charge a lot higher than a credit card. But the law in Colorado has a lot of protections, and it's important to keep in mind the quality of these loans is much different and much better than in other states. To the comment that you raised, yes, payday lenders are making loans to people who on average have credit scores in the low 500s. They they are much bigger credit risks. And that is why state law currently allows people to charge more than 36% on a loan. Uh, but right now, the market in Colorado is, is fairly fair, and it's it's working reasonably well. Hmm. I will say that the legislature has actually taken action on this in 2007 and then again in 2010. So it's not as if this ballot measure is the first volley in Colorado to reform payday lending. Okay, so the folks who take out these loans are indeed... Uh, risks in some regards. Why don't we do some more fact-checking? So we spoke with Corinne Fowler. She's campaign manager for Prop 111. And she says there are other ways for low-income folks to get loans. There are a lot of products available to consumers now through their credit unions and their banks and even their credit cards that offer much lower loans than 36%. Every individual that takes a loan is a banked individual, and they most likely have access to that some sort of credit that they might not be aware of. We also have to make a real shift around what we think is fair lending and stop saying that it's okay to have this predatory product in our state to begin with and provide new access to credit if people need it. Okay, so she uses that 36% figure. Again, Prop 111 would limit these payday loans to 36% annual interest. And banked individuals, as you've told us, is folks with bank accounts. You have to have that to take out one of these loans. But uh, fact check her for us. Can these borrowers find other access to credit? And and I, I guess she's assuming that's better access to credit. Well, on the one hand, there are a lot of products on the market, uh, credit products that have APRs below 36%. But as I said, the typical payday loan customer or applicant has a credit score uh, that's 517. It's in the low 500s. Uh, They're not getting credit cards. They're not getting installment loans. They're not getting those uh, sub 36% APR loans. And they're not going to get them uh, after this ballot initiative if it passes. Uh, Now, are these predatory loans? I I think that um, that's an interesting thing to talk about. What does predatory mean? Usually in the payday loan market, and there are uh, 34 other states in the country that have payday loans, uh, as, as well as Colorado, usually in the payday loan market, we're looking at issues of predation or abuse. 
with loans that uh, are due in full in just two weeks and they take more than one third of the customer's next paycheck when they come due. Mm. They have APRs in the range of 400% or higher. Uh, They have prepayment penalties or other kinds of harmful practices. The loans in Colorado, because of the 2010 law, have none of those things. So it's not clear to me what what is meant by uh, the term predatory loan in this case. And this goes back, uh, as I said, to previous legislation that's been passed in Colorado. Uh, And so it it sounds like other access to credit would be difficult to come by. As you say, if the interest rate is capped in Colorado at 36 percent, payday lenders will be out of the market. Uh, What do you base that claim on? Well, as I say, there are 35 states in the country that have payday loan stores. Uh, Colorado is unique in its law. Uh, The 15 states plus D.C. that that do not have payday loan stores have effective APR limits in the range of 36%. So empirically, there's not a state that has that kind of APR limit and has uh, stores making uh, credit available. Uh, like a payday loan or a small installment loan to people with this kind of credit score. Now, every state in the country, including Colorado, has pawn shops and rent-to-own stores, which often cost a lot more than payday loans. Every state in this country has consumers with checking accounts who have fee-based overdraft programs that charge uh, typically $35 every time somebody overdrafts their checking account. But payday loan stores do not exist in states where there's an effective APR cap like 36%. All right. So we can look to other states as a harbinger, perhaps, of what might happen in Colorado if Prop 111 passes on the midterm ballot. I think it's important to follow the money. And the biggest contributor to 111 is a group called the 1630 Fund, which is based in North Carolina and fights for, among other things, tax fairness, transparency in government, and access to health care. And local donors, this is interesting, uh, include the Mile High United Way. I want to say that we reached out to multiple payday lenders, and none would do an interview on Prop 111, but not surprisingly, we can say they oppose this measure. Is it possible that if payday loans aren't available in Colorado, that people might be uh, forced into more dangerous situations? I mean, I I, I don't know. I don't want to paint too bleak a picture, but like loan sharks, is that a possibility? Or uh, the idea of even physical harm or something like that? You know, the the loan shark thing comes up often. There's Uh just no evidence of it. Okay. Um, Every now and then... You will hear somebody tell a story how they know somebody who hangs out by a check cashing shop and they'll make a few hundred dollars available in small loans to people informally. Um, but on a on a widespread basis, it just doesn't happen. And and that that's for a lot of reasons. But I can tell you one big reason it doesn't happen is people who use payday loans are generally just kind of mainstream ordinary people. They want to use legal stores. They don't want to go to alleyways and get cash. They're looking for a a place that has a a sign, a storefront, customer service, some sense of protection uh, from state law. They don't go to um, uh, loan sharks by and large. But, um, you know, what they do do is they look at the other options on the table and some of them will overdraft more. Some of them will go to pawn shops more, rent to own shops more, and some of them won't borrow as much. But... um, I can tell you that in in Colorado, with the current payday loans, they're small installment loans. Everybody has a minimum repayment term of six months. 
the APR and the cost, the overall cost is about four times lower than any other payday loan state. And so I suppose uh, there are a lot of protections. Yeah, the question and for, when for we voters, talk to consumers. I'm so sorry, Nick, I'm going to have to wrap it up, but I think the, the fundamental question facing voters is whether Colorado law has gone far enough or if they think it needs to go further. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. Nick Bork, Director of Consumer Finance at the Pew Charitable Trusts in Washington, D.C. And to reiterate, neither he nor Pew take a position on Prop 111 in Colorado. The measure would cap interest rates on payday loans at 36 percent. And I'll note again that payday lenders we contacted were unwilling to speak. Voters in several suburban Denver counties could have a big say over which political party will run state government. These communities will likely swing this fall's election results. CPR's John Daly visited Jefferson County and found voters there have a lot on their minds. Tammy Story is a Democrat running for state Senate. She walks a scenic Jefferson County neighborhood where a tall rock mesa rises to the east. We're out here today in Golden and looking to go knock on some doors and canvas. Story stops by a house with a picket fence. Six-year-old Zeke and his two brothers chase each other around. It's super fun to sort of hit my brother with this big ball thingy. Story rings the bell and introduces herself. So what what are your top issues? What are your greatest concerns? Um, education and growth. Jeffco has long been ground zero in the turf war between Republicans and Democrats in purplish Colorado. Rusha Lev says her kids' schools are packed. A Jeffco school funding measure failed at the polls in 2016. She points to crowded roads and highways. I think that we don't have the infrastructure or the resources to handle the massive amounts of people that are moving here. For Lev, who's a pediatrician, housing is another worry. She works at Denver Health the region's safety net hospital. What I see in my job is a lot of families who are kind of living on the edge, and now housing is their biggest problem. They're totally forced out of the metro area. People are couch surfing. There's no such thing as low-income housing anymore. Her husband, Guy, is a physical therapist at CU. They moved to Golden eight years ago. Just traffic is worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And we know we live in a wonderful place, but if we have a great economy, can we do something about it, make the growth sustainable? In Jeffco, about 40 percent of voters are unaffiliated. Democrats and Republicans have roughly 30 percent each. That trend mirrors state numbers. Candidate Tammy Story says people tell her they want to protect the environment and see more money for roads and schools. They're concerned about the lack of funding. And they're concerned about the teacher shortage. They, they recognize that we have 3,000 open teaching positions across the state. It's hard to have the best public education system when we are so underfunded. The story meets another Golden resident, Julie McClanahan. She's a physician and is worried about the current national political environment. She has two boys, 10 and 7, both adopted from South Korea. I worry about their future. I worry about just because they're children. And because they're not white. McClanahan comes from a Republican family. Her father, who's still alive, served in Vietnam. She tears up as she recalls how the recent death and funeral of Senator John McCain touched a nerve. I come from a family that respects religious, moral, and military-type values. And I feel like it's a huge loss. The great leaders and the great moral compasses of our time are disappearing. 
It's scary. McClanahan pledges her support for Tammy Story in the District 16 Senate race. Story says she meets many people with strong views. This happens every day when I'm out here knocking on doors. There's this strong grassroots support, and these are the issues that people are passionate about. There are strong opinions on both sides of this race. At an office park in Littleton, a number of Republican candidates explain their message to a couple dozen volunteers. One candidate is the incumbent Tammy Story wants to beat. My name is Tim Neville. You're a senator from Senate District 16. Neville beat a Democratic incumbent to help Republicans take over the state Senate in 2014. He moved to Colorado as a young man in the 1970s. Neville tells the group he wants to keep the state a place that values the chance to get ahead with hard work. That's what we call the opportunity that, that comes from only from making sure that we have freedom and we have individual liberty. Democrats are in solid control of the state House of Representatives, while Republicans control the state Senate by just one seat. Neville reminds the group what's at stake. We have a balanced legislature. Now, it's not the end of the world with that balance. Actually, that balance creates a level of sanity. However, this year, the push is to undo that balance. Volunteer Cindy Beyer doesn't like the prospect of Democrats taking total control of state government. She's an attorney and a single mom. Beyer backs smaller government, thinks the state passes too many ballot measures, and opposes one limiting oil and gas development. We are looking at a crossroads. You always need checks and balances. Like we have checks and balances with the House and the Senate and the governor. You need to have a voice of reason between all houses. Another volunteer, Mark Auville, a telecom engineer and small business owner from Arvada, is keenly aware of the balance of state government control. He worries a Democratic sweep could push an agenda too progressive for him. We'll be California East. And I think there's a lot of people in in this state that don't want that. We have a lot of people, carpetbaggers coming in, telling us they know better than us. They know better than we the people. Republican Senator Tim Neville says the current bipartisan control of the legislature has mostly worked. He says lawmakers compromised to pass meaningful legislation to improve the state's schools, roads, and public safety. And he sees a split legislature as a check on Democrats who are moving a little bit farther more toward a, a socialist bent or a, a different focus that Colorado has not been used to in the past. This group of GOP candidates and volunteers fans out through the community. Neville heads to a chili fest in the town of Superior. I have a veggie green chili, a pork green chili. He sets up at a tent with the Boulder County Republicans and starts shaking hands. Francis. Francis, good to meet you. So who are these young guys? Neville talks to Francis Smith, who's in aerospace. He moved to Colorado from Seattle a year and a half ago and is concerned about health costs and education. Unaffiliated. I am unaffiliated. So I I would vote for whoever I think is making the, the smartest decisions for the, for the largest amount of people out there. Smith is following the race between Tammy Story and Tim Neville a little bit. Like this crucial Swing County in general, Smith says his vote could go either way. I'm John Daly, CPR News. John's story is part of CPR's series Road Trip to November. Our journalists travel the state to talk with voters ahead of the midterms, and you can find all their stories mapped out along with some beautiful photos at roadtrip.cpr.org. Still to come, how climate change connects to floods. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Floods could get much more intense because of climate change. That's according to new research from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Angie Pendergrass is the author. She finds that rain is falling unevenly throughout the year, and that is only going to get worse. Hi, Angie. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. When you say precipitation is falling unevenly, what what does that mean exactly? Well, um, it means that some days we get a lot of our precipitation, but then, you know, as you know from your experience, we spend a lot of the time not really getting much rain. Um, So in climate science, a lot of times we're thinking about what happens to kind of averages over a long period of time. And we know that precipitation goes up a little bit in response to warming. Um, But actually, a lot of that increase is happening in uh, just a few days, just a few of the days that are already the wettest days. Interesting. So there's a kind of lopsided quality to this, and that's only going to increase. And that makes me think that on those days, the risk of floods would increase under climate change. Yeah. um, To the extent that uh, precipitation is what's driving floods, which, you know, there are other factors, too. Um, but what what we're seeing is that the the days that are already the days with the heaviest precipitation will get most of the increase. And so that kind of points to an increase in the intensity of flooding and maybe some more days uh, that don't have flooding now that could start to get flooding in the future. A kind of concentration of precipitation. Uh, and, and what are the consequences of that? Um, well, uh, so I think a lot of the negative impacts that we see of precipitation in general are really because of this unevenness. So, you know, if it were to rain the same amount every day, um, then we would have a good handle on what's happening. But oh. so, you know, the floods that we see are because uh, precipitation is already concentrated on the heaviest days. And then the flip side of that is really that drought happens when we don't see precipitation for quite a while. Right, um, to... and, and so this increase in unevenness kind of points to an increase in um, both sides of those impacts. And what what about climate change is leading to those extremes? So the extreme concentration, if you will, of dryness, of drought, and then the extreme concentration of rain. I mean, what are the forces that lead to that? Yeah, well, um, I could go down a technical hole here, um, but a lot of my work is actually trying to understand, you know, why we see what we see. Uh-huh. And so there, there are a couple of different factors. Um, one is kind of the um, the effects of of just the greenhouse effect. Um, in addition to changing the the kind of global energy balance, there are also changes within the atmosphere, and that's kind of what precipitation feels. Um, and so that's one factor. Um, another factor is the increase in moisture. So we expect there to be an increase in moisture, kind of all the time in response to warming. Um, And then a third factor are the changes in circulation that are kind of related to these. And those factors all come together uh, to decrease the, um, to kind of suppress the precipitation generally, but to have heavier events when we have them. How quickly is this changing? I mean, compare what we're seeing now, the effects of this are already in place, right, to five or 15 years ago. 
Um, well, so in this particular study, um, we were looking at the last 16 or so years and calling those the present. Um, and we were comparing that to what is projected to happen at the end of the century if we don't do any mitigation. Um, and so I think um, one thing that's a, a little bit scary is that we expect to see much bigger changes than we've seen so far. Um, so um, up to the present, compared to before humans really started altering the climate, we've seen about one degree of warming um, in terms of Celsius. Um, and we expect to see maybe four degrees by the end of the century. Um, and so what we've seen so far is really small compared to what we might expect to see by the end of the century. And you say that that might be our future if there's not mitigation. Mitigation, a loaded term there. One totally we, loaded. One we hear a lot. Uh, expound on what you mean by mitigation in the face of climate change. Well, um, so this this kind of high emission scenario we looked at, it was just kind of, you know, if we keep doing things as we're doing them now um, and emitting greenhouse gases at, at the rate that we're doing that we're doing now. Um, in this study, we actually compared to a different emission scenario where we did put a fair amount of effort um, into emitting fewer greenhouse gases. Um, and then we see uh, not anywhere near as big of an increase in the unevenness of precipitation. And so I think that's that's great. That's, you know, if we do things to try to um, emit less carbon and kind of change the economy that we can do all kinds of things. It doesn't have to necessarily be horrible for the economy. Um, then we can we can make a difference and avoid some of this uh, increase in the unevenness of precipitation. Otherwise, it's going to have to be a preparation for more concentrated flooding and more concentrated drought. Yeah. I imagine that some of this would differ from region to region. Is there any sense that Colorado would be especially hard hit by the forces we're talking about in the face of climate change? Um, yeah, it definitely varies a lot by region. Um, so in Colorado, we're kind of on the dry side of normal. And, yeah. and so we're already feeling a little bit more unevenness than a lot of other places. Um, but we're actually at a place of, with a lot of uncertainty in terms of our projections of how precipitation will change in response to warming, just in terms of where we're located relative to the jet stream um, and, you know, relative to the deserts in the southwest. It's pretty difficult to say what happens in Colorado, and it also varies a lot depending on whether you're in the front range, whether you're on the other side of the mountains, on the western slope or in the plains. So that's well, a pretty hard question. I see. But uh, there is a, a fair amount of clarity, though, about what happens to rain and to drought in the face of climate change. Thanks for mm -hmm. being with us, Angie. Thank you. Angie Pendergrass studies climate at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Her study about uneven rainfall and climate change is about to be published online in the Journal of Climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and our next story exposes a little-known aspect of slavery. I want to say that some listeners may find this disturbing. Denver poet Dominique Christina gives voice to an enslaved black woman who, in the 1800s, endured medical experiments, procedures performed by a white doctor considered to be the father of modern gynecology. Christina's new poetry collection is Anarcha Speaks, a History in Poems, and welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. You write in the voices of both Anarcha, the enslaved woman, and Dr. J. Marion Sims, the white doctor who experimented on her. 
Uh, let's start with a poem written from Sims' perspective. Dr. Sims makes something new. Okay. The, just set it up for us. What is the new thing? This was really when he was at the precursor of inventing what would become the modern-day speculum, which is used today for pap smears and, you know, gynecological exams. And this grew out of his work, some would say, torture of slaves. Correct. Okay, so let me have you read this. Dr. Sims makes something new. What should happen, most always, is invention. There is no wider mystery in the universe than that of woman. What salt and bone she's got. She is a composition of afterthought, a borrowed rib if you know your Bible. She is so easily disassembled. I take the ruined stock of Eve, the wilted petals, the spent flesh, and bring it wire, steel, restoration. Everything we delight in came first by the blood of a woman, and then, and then, iron and what men do after. It is well documented that Sims experimented on female slaves as part of his gynecological research. Correct. What did these women endure during and after the experiments? I mean, that that poem really gives you the sense that there's a dehumanizing going on here. Right, and of course, you know, the, the institution of slavery was already participating in that dehumanization and the commodification of bodies. So for me, it's it's about Dr. Sims' sort of glacial disinclination toward his subjects. They were just subjects. They were not human beings. They were not afforded the rights or the proper considerations that you would you know, offer to a human being or someone that you respected or valued or empathized with. And fundamentally what he was trying to do, because there was sort of a stigma attached to treating women, um, particularly gynecologically. So he was trying to figure out a way to repair damages that were done during labor and delivery trauma, specifically vesicovaginal and rectovaginal fistula tears. Um, and so he quartered these enslaved women in this makeshift hospital behind his house in Alabama and experimented on them with the intent of perfecting that procedure and then offering it to white women. And he did so without anesthesia. Anesthesia Without anesthesia. Right. There was a belief, I've read, that uh, black people could not feel pain. I Correct. Mean, that, that was part of Correct. what was in the zeitgeist at that point. That's right. That was the prevailing sort of ideology at the time, that black people did not record pain in the body the same way that others did. And so it was fundamentally a way to justify brutality. And so for these slaves, for the people he was experimenting on, this would have been incredibly painful. Of course. And for a long time? Of course, yes. Would, yes. It, ha- would it ever have been beneficial? To them? Yeah. Uh, it's my understanding that he did repair some of these tears to the women. Um, I think for me, it's about procedure. Um, they were tortured and there was a ton of bloodletting before a repair was done, right? And so there was still no real regard for their humanity or their personhood. Yes, he fixed certain injuries, but he created others. 
I have been haunted since reading your collection. I mean, just just so haunted by this history. I wonder how it affected you when you first learned about Anarka's story. And and let's be clear that Anarka is a uh, was a real life person. Absolutely. Um, I found her by accident. I'm an etymologist, so I went looking for the etymology of the word anarchy, and I found this name with an asterisk, huh. Anarka, and needed to try to track her down. And it was clear that she was only, the only language that was being curated for her was as a means to talk about the doctor, J. Marion Sims. And I was appalled by that. That that she would be the footnote. That's right. In his story. That's right. And not the other way around. That's right. And so for me, it was about trying to leave enough room for her to be able to speak and tell her story and and move as much of myself and my own projections out of the way, which is really hard to do, um, but I think a really necessary thing to do if you're going to attempt persona poems. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the Denver poet Dominique Christina. And she has a new collection of poetry called Anarka Speaks, A History in Poems. And it sheds light on some pretty terrible history uh, that on top of enslaving people in the United States, slaves were also subjected to medical experiments. And uh, I I think what's, what's so painful and so complicated here is that much of the science The medical practice today is based on this. That's right. That's right. Isn't that complicated? Yeah. Speak speak (laughs) to that for me as a woman. You know, it it does. It creates a tremendous complication for me. I I recognize that there is always a, a balancing act that is required when we talk about what we are the beneficiaries of in our present day realities, we have to at some point interrogate how we got here. Mm. And oftentimes there was torture or pain or wounding or bruising in the back of it. And so it does create a complication. Fundamentally for me, though, Anarka is not singular. There's still a very important and urgent conversation around women today who do not have authorship over their bodies, particularly during labor and delivery, you're still being prescribed and dictated to in that hospital room. It was very important to me that in this conversation, we hear you use Anarka's voice from the collection. And uh, it's frankly the voice that I'd like towards the end of the conversation. So we're left with her words. Would you read a poem uh, called No Magic, No How? Yes. No Magic, No How. That's when I take down my own dumb heart, right there. When Master Doctor say, I a mule, with a few more miles left to a slaver stop by for water on his way to someplace, right there. Right there. When Master Doctor look right past the way I hurt to say, she a tough old gal can take a mighty licking. Right there. Right there. There, I scoop out the little bit of woman left and let her ghosted bones litter the creek bed. Not enough of her left even for remembering that's best. No baby, busted womb, blood, and massa doctor's prayerlessness. What I gotta do to get out of myself, huh? What I gotta do to junk this here body? Tell me quick, Lord. I'm listening. I'm ready. 
How was it to write that, and, and what's going on in that poem? Oh, it's painful. Um, what kept coming up for me about Anarka was uh, the complication of her body and how sturdy it in fact was, had to be. She was operated on more than 30 times without anesthesia. The doctor gave her opium once. And I imagine that that body and, and how miraculous it is and its ability to stay also is cursed or feels cursed because she does not know how to exit it. Despite what's happening to her and how many others leave when less happens to it, her body remains and she doesn't know how to escape her body and therefore does not know how to escape her hurt. But it's also upon hearing the language that the doctor is curating about her, Mm. that clinical distance that creates such a deep bruise for her. I'm just a mule that can take a mighty licking. Thank you for introducing us to Anarka and to thank this you. history. Yeah, thank you so much. Grateful for it. Denver poet Dominique Christina's new collection is Anarka Speaks, a history in poems. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It had never happened before a woman winning the Boston Comedy Festival. It's a big deal. And Nancy Norton did it this year. She's from Boulder, and her stand-up career spans 30 years. Norton is a regular performer at Denver's Comedy Works. Her jokes often focus on aging, gender fluidity, and sexual orientation. I really think what I identify with, which I wish they would add to the GLBTQ, is a P. I'm a P. I'm a pie sexual. I have sex every 3.1415 years. <laughs> I'm bragging. I'm bragging. But just like pie, it goes on forever. So, Nancy, congratulations on your win. Thank you, Ryan. We start with an overshare there, right? Was, right out of the gate. Oh, yeah. That's, how, that's my style. <laughs> overshare up front. What was it like to become the first woman ever to win that competition in Boston? One word is a thrill. It was a thrill. It was just... I was so amazed and delighted, and especially at this age, in my 50s, because we feel a little invisible in society and sort of uh, in the comedy community, too. Uh, we can be missing uh, the elder the elder ladies. I felt like I should be creaking as I walk in here. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is with the idea that it's the younger, up-and-coming, sort of new face, new voice that often wins these things? Yeah, okay. sure. Mo- most of the comics that were in the final, well, there, there were 48 entrants, uh, tons of submissions, and down to the last eight in the finals, and I sort of surveyed people. How many years have you been doing it? Uh-huh. I think the longest was about 12 at most, we're around six to eight. And I'm like, uh, 30. I've been doing it 30 years. <laughs> I've been doing this longer than you've been alive. Uh, yeah, I understand though. that comedy was not your first career, though. Well, no. No. no I was uh, a nurse. I, I, went, I actually got out of nursing for the same reason a lot of people get into it, to save lives. <laughs> <laughs> I do think uh, of the gallows humor, though, in nursing and the sort of helping professions. I I wonder if when you were a nurse, you were the one who was cracking jokes about the the painful stuff that can surround a nurse. (laughs) When you said the painful, I thought you were going to say 
the patients. Oh. Um, we're not supposed to laugh at the patients, and we don't ever. Um, yes, the reason I went into comedy is from uh, really watching people die. I know it's ironic, but I watched. I was a hospice nurse, and oh. I watched people die. It's a very sacred, authentic time. It's precious, and people don't waste their words. And they told me in no uncertain terms, I am at peace right now because I lived my dreams. These people that died in peace. And so that became my goal. I, want, I know it's a lifetime goal, but it is to die in peace. And it's kind of ironic, but it led me to stand-up comedy. With the idea that you had always loved stand-up? I wanted to do it. Ever since I was a very, very small child, I was the clown of my family. I was the class clown. And I didn't have any mentors. I didn't know how to do stand-up comedy. I didn't know how to get on a stage. I didn't know how to do that, but I always wanted to do that. I understand that uh, growing up, Johnny Carson was a big inspiration. And we actually asked you to pick one of your favorite Tonight Show moments. So in this clip, the chair that Carson is sitting in suddenly lowers, and this this is how he deals with it. <laughs> My seat just went down. Hey, hey. My seat just went down. No, no. God, I thought he we were canceled. He may... <laughs> I thought it was all over. The seat just went. NBC is cruel the way they tell you. They just the seat goes down and they move somebody in. Tell us how you picked that moment. <laughs> I just, I love the, I love improv. I love I, I, and authenticity is my thing. I don't think I'm the funniest comic, but I think I'm one of the most authentic. And those authentic moments, like that spoke his subconscious fear. Every comic is sort of an arrogant and insecure at the same time, always. Mm. And he, you know, obviously he believes in himself. He's funny. He knows he's funny. But he's also always insecure that this could end at any moment. Or I think most artists, we don't know where the creativity comes from. We don't know when the fount is, you know, when it's going to be shut off. So where there's always that fear of like, this is it. You know, I'm going down. Yeah, that tension and maybe even that imposter syndrome. Like, yeah. do, do I belong here? Right. Did you like, feel that at Boston? Well, no, I didn't. I, this is, I in the past, I called myself a choker, not a joker, a choker. I choked at contests. I wanted it too badly. I like, oh, I hope they see it. I hope they see how funny I am. And I tried too hard. And this time I told myself, you know, the, the grand prize was $10,000. Uh-huh. And I said, Nancy, you've done the 10,000 hours. Go get the $10,000. It's okay. Like I had to give myself permission to win. And I gave myself permission and it worked out. And it worked out. Yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with stand-up comedian Nancy Norton of Boulder. She has just won the Boston Comedy Festival, the first woman to do that at Boston. Uh, And I wonder, uh, having done stand-up now for three decades, are there jokes that never get old, like that are part of your repertoire from day one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I wonder if that nursing joke actually... Oh, yeah. The nursing joke is timeless. Okay. Right? And then I do I do a lot of jokes about being uh, gender confused, not gender... I don't even know if it was confused. I think I was really clear that I'm gender fluid. And why doesn't society get it? So I do these jokes about wanting a gun and holster set and getting an Easy Bake Oven and have, <laughs> you know, having to play Cowboys and Indians with an oven on my hip. Very awkward. <laughs> you know? Although those little cake pans are like little ninja cake pans, you, you know... I was feared in my neighborhood. You could throw the pants like oh, yeah. ninja stars. Ninja stars. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Can okay. I do sound effects like that? <laughs> you absolutely can. People, I think it, it adds a dimension. Does the listener get that that was a ninja star? What does gender fluid mean to you? Tell me about your own struggles with how to identify yourself to the world or yourself to yourself or what? Yeah, I think some, I had a breakthrough not so long ago. And I think that the, the LGBTQ, when people are like gender queer... And 
you know, just identifying that there is this social construct of a binary gender thing. And I think what I just started asking myself when I, or noticing in my act when I impression when I do an impression of a woman I I raise my voice and I talk like this and then when I do an impression of a man I lower my voice and I talk like this so I'm like oh I guess I don't identify as a man or a woman oh that's fascinating I'm somewhere in the middle I'm right there and as I'm aging now I'm I'm, I'm leaning more towards the male voice but still just saying I've always loved climbing trees and I I played dolls and I climbed trees and I had Hot Wheels cars. I just didn't understand why we had to have one or the other. I never got that. But it's fascinating that you use the language when I impersonate a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel when I was in nursing school, we had to wear a dress and the male nurses got to wear pants and I was so jealous. And I'm like, why am I having to wear this awkward dress with uncomfortable pantyhose just because of my XX chromosome. I don't get this. This is not me. It was very frustrating in nursing school. But I felt like I was in drag. I'm like, I'm in drag. This isn't, I don't wear dresses. You uh, either brag or joke. I'm not sure which it is. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Combo platter. That you came out before Ellen. Well. And that's kind of, that's a big deal. I am proud of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm proud of that. And I... I think she was smarter than me and is smarter than me. I mean, obviously, her career path is amazing. I'm on a very slow trajectory. It took me 30 years to win a contest. And I've still not even been on late night talk show. I want that's my goal after this is like, let's do late night. You know, this show airs at 7 p.m. as well. So does it, but that doesn't count. No, okay. <laughs> yeah, it does. Actually, Ryan, I'm a huge fan. I just want you to know. Oh, that's that. very kind. Is it okay to say that? Sure. Can I just acknowledge something? This, I just want you to know, you're an oasis on my phone. When I hit Colorado Matters, it's like it's this beautiful merger of scholar meets empath, and that's kind of rare and special. And I just want to acknowledge that. And thank, thank you. you, giving a shout out to Ryan Warner right here, right now. But, but back to you I and know, this idea it's supposed of, to be about me. of coming out before Ellen. Uh, did you face backlash? She certainly did. Oh, tons of backlash. Um, first of all, yeah, first of all, you know, my mother was devastated. And uh, she just was, I could cry, you know, it just hurts so much. And, you know, it, it's, it really stopped me from doing a television. So it's painful to talk about. You had an opportunity to do TV that you turned down because no, of No, I actually or... did do the show. But it, it hurt her so much that um, I can't, I don't want to out her and her process. But there were some traumatic events that happened that were life-threatening. And it was, uh, it was devastating. So, it, yeah, it was hard. It was hard in my family. Sorry, that was a surprise. Anyway, don't the be clown. sorry. Dee, 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 dee. Well, I, <laughs> I just think, I think there's such know, a duality uh, for comedians of pain and and laughter. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. That's we're, what's coming absolutely. out. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, there's no question that you know, there's no question. There's pain behind the Easy Bake Oven material, or you know, even the pie sexuality. It's but you know, really, at the end of the day, we've got to laugh and. And, and my mother and I have healed this relationship. I was going to ask. I was going to tell you, that's part of it, too, is like, I feel her support. I got to tell you something. She watched my act for the first time this year, 30 years. She finally said, you know, I Googled you on YouTube and Nancy, you're good. I was like, wow. I wonder if that felt bigger than Boston. <laughs> wow, maybe so. It was different and yet yeah, very validating. Both of them were very validating. 
So I just I just want to make sure I have clarity on what happened. Did you come out on TV? Yes. I saw Bud Friedman, the producer of Evening at the Improv back in the day. You remember Evening at the Improv on A&E Network? He came to Denver. He auditioned 20 of us, and he chose one. And it was me, and I was so honored. Oh. And 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 I, I, I came out during my audition. And I wasn't going to, but it just came out. And I, and he, I said, can I say I'm a lesbian on TV? That's how early it was, 1994. Oh, can I say I'm a lesbian? And he said, of course you can say you're a lesbian. Just don't say the F word, <laughs> which I had, <laughs> I had said in my audition set. Sorry, Mom, for that, too. But anyway, so I was determined for this girl in Kansas who may be isolated, who may be feeling I'm all alone, needs to see the lesbian next door. And I did it. Before we go, what is your dream gig? So you want to be on late night, but pick a late night show. Well, the late show. Stephen Colbert is my hero. Stephen, so, okay. Yes, I would love to be on the late show. That would that that's my next like, goal is to to do stand up with Stephen Colbert. I'm not sure he listens. Yeah, but, but you we, know, I'll but, send him the link. We've put it out there. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for Ryan. being with us, Nancy. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Boulder comedian Nancy Norton is the first woman ever to win the Boston Comedy Festival, and that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. You can follow us. On Twitter, at Colorado Matters, I'm at CPR Warner, and we are CPR News on Facebook. Lovely to spend time with you. Thanks for being with us at Colorado Public Radio News.